1: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half arts history this week on the agenda. We're going to be having a chat about a couple of different popular sayings we all use today, all used today in the 21st century. We're going to talk about their historical origins. This is a topic that's been requested by a lot of people, uh, and I had a very good time doing this episode, so I'll probably do another installment uh, of it at some point as well. So if you've got a saying that you think would be uh, you know, good fun to explore, make sure to get in touch. Let me know. We'll do all the housekeeping stuff later on the end of the episode, of course, if you want to know how to do that. But uh, anyway, yes, English uh, is full of old sayings that we, we all use but never really think about. It. A huge number of them uh, just end up coming from, like, sailing or boxing, apparently. That's what I learned. <laughs> but uh, today, we're going to go a bit deeper on four different sayings and, and figure out, you know, what they're all about, where they've come from, and why they're so popular. Um, the four sayings I picked for this episode, and again, I'll probably do more, uh, Beyond the Pale. Fiddling while Rome burns. I'm sure everyone's uh, everyone knows at least a little bit about that one. Red herring and hoist with his own petard. These are all sayings. I bet you've heard them before. Uh, I'd be surprised, however, if everyone listening knew all the ins and outs of every single one of these sayings, because some of them are very interesting, very amusing as well. Um, I just want to say before we start as well, the history of sayings is it's quite tricky uh, because a lot of stuff is apocryphal or just made up. Uh, but I'm reasonably confident about my research on these four. And there is one saying, in fact, where we do address some of the apocryphal stuff uh, surrounding it. But, you know, if I'm wrong about any of the stuff that I talk about today, let me know. There's a lot of different perspectives and sources on this sort of stuff. I did my best. Um, I reckon I'm not too far off with a lot of it. But, uh, again, you know, I, I guess just remember that there I guess, more than other areas of history with this sort of thing, there is a little more, uh, you know, of a sort of a grey area when it comes to being, strictly speaking, correct. So I've done my best. Anyway. Let's get to it. Let's chat about these four sayings. Here we go. Let's get underway. And we're going all the way back, all the way back here for the first one, for our first saying, all the way back to 1169. Um, When someone describes something as being beyond the pale, they're usually referring to something that's, you know, very full on. Someone who's gone too far. Someone It's sort of outside the boundary of common decency, something like that, right? But why is that going beyond the pale? And to where are you going, might I ask, from the pale to what? The cream, the bone, the white, the off-white, the ivory or the beige? It's actually got nothing to do with colour. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not that kind of pale at all. It's got nothing to do with colour and everything to do with, if you believe it, medieval Irish politics. I bet you weren't expecting that. Well, unless you're Irish and then you probably know exactly where I'm going with this. Anyway, um, in 1169, right, Ireland was invaded by the Anglo-Normans. These were the ruling classes of England that, uh, of course, England had been a century previously conquered by William the Conqueror. So these Anglo-Normans are the, are the people who are in power, you know, a hundred or so years later. Now, the Normans that invaded Ireland, they set up shop in the area that is known today as Dublin, of course, while the entire island of Ireland was technically under their control. It Absolutely, was not. Over the years, Norman influence over Ireland uh, we can significantly consider was never really well established to begin with, and then only weakened further after this, uh, you know, after this uh, invasion here and in the years that followed it the uh, various local irish irish warlords chieftains these sorts of people rulers they would they they became essentially de facto independent rulers there was there was a sort of lazy acknowledgement of the english crown every now and again just just to keep things you know ticking over smoothly and and, and avoid causing uh, too much of a kerfuffle in the same uh, but, but then by the same token there were plenty of rebellions and things as well so there was no real authority uh, that the English crown had over Ireland in real terms, in, in sort of de facto terms. De jure certainly. Like they said that they were, uh, you know, they said that they had a lordship over Ireland, whatever else. But in real terms, right, the Anglo-Norman sphere of influence was quite, quite decidedly restricted to the area immediately surrounding what we today call Dublin. And this sphere of influence, it shrank and shrank and shrank, right, as these, you know, smaller local dominions that surround it uh, eventually, just sort of ate up more and more territory and, and incorporated them into them into their de facto independent realms, until eventually, the uh, the Norman the Anglo Norman invaders they built a fence around the area that they controlled uh, around the area you know today that holds uh, modern day Dublin. They went around the borders of this area that was firmly under Anglo-Norman control, and they built this fence, they dug ditches, and generally they generally just firmed up their defences of this area to prevent mainly attacks or raids from local Irish leaders and, and the other populace who were living outside of the uh, outside of the fence there, um, and, and of course to help strengthen their claim on the land that they did inhabit. But by the end of the 15th century, Anglo-Norman influence in Ireland had been reduced in real terms just to the land inside this fence. Everything on the other side of it was effectively under the independent rule of various Irish leaders, which obviously changed the very fluid situation there. The fence was primarily to prevent, as I say, these raids, but really just to stop thieves, basically just people who were looking to steal livestock rustlers um, and there were raiders who are up to no good as well, but uh, it's not as if, you know, it was a huge big bulwark or anything like that. It wasn't designed to prevent armies from marching across. It was just some wooden posts in the ground, a couple of ditches that was, you know, would, would make going and, and stealing a couple of cattle more trouble than it's worth, or make them, you know, make it impossible for them to get them back over before the uh, before the English authorities could respond to, you know, a raider hopping the fence or whatever. Um inside the fence, right, you were subject to the laws of the English crown, as well as, of course, as The protections of it, when the protections that came with that law, where whereas if you were outside the fence, or if you'd like to put it this way, beyond the fence, if you like, you weren't subject to the law, and you weren't subject to these protections. And on the other side of this fence, it was imagined by the English, you would find a lawless, immoral anarchy, right? Bandits, murderers, who knows what else? The English of Never really thought too much of the Irish. They still don't seem to today. And uh, so that they, they warned the people living within this fence. They warned, they warned the people living within the safety of this boundary. They said, don't venture beyond, you know, the, the protection of English authority. Don't, don't go beyond the upstanding decency and moral fortitude of the civilised lands within. Don't go beyond the safeguard of the fence that would be, in other words, going beyond the pale. Because the word pale here, it doesn't refer to a colour. It actually refers to the actual literal fence posts, the fence pales, if you like, that the barrier was made of. And even today, the area in and around Dublin is known as the pale, and it all stems back to the fence pales that once surrounded it to do to delineate the final boundary of English influence over the supposed, you know, the supposedly Lawless land that lay uh, that lay beyond it. So, if someone today describes something as being beyond the pale, they are actually invoking a centuries-old saying that dates all the way back to medieval Ireland, and the idea that it was this, you know, immoral, indecent, uncivilized wasteland. Uh, and so, to go beyond the pale is to do something that that befits that perception of being indecent, immoral, or uncivilized. So. As for the Pale itself, obviously, in time, the English Tudors reconquered Ireland in the, in the 16th century, leading to Henry VIII being crowned the King of Ireland in 1542. The, the English reinvasion it used the Pale as their base of operations, and, and it quickly spread English rule throughout the entire island, this invasion. And the fence and its Pales be, became redundant and forgotten as, as the entire island, uh, you know, fell under the influence of the English. But the saying ...that they left behind lives on today. It's used centuries later for, you know, when someone, for example, I don't know, shags his mate's girlfriend. That is the historical legacy of the Pale of Ireland. Now you will have heard of Nero, one of, uh, one of Rome's most famous, or I, I suppose I should say most infamous emperors, uh, along with Caligula, episode 33, get across it. Um, and doubtless you've heard of the story of him fiddling while Rome burned. There's this saying, of course, fiddling while Rome burns. It refers to when someone, usually a leader... Uh, occupies themselves with stuff that doesn't matter in the middle of an, of an emergency or a crisis. A very evocative saying, of course. You know, you can imagine, you know, your city's burning down. You're there. You're soaring away on your violin. Definitely paints a picture. And uh, is used today, of course, to describe often political leaders who are standing by idly or focusing on stuff that doesn't matter when there's a when there's a, a bigger, much more dramatic issue uh, at hand. But is it true? Did Nero play the violin? Did Rome burn? How historically accurate is this saying? Well, the answers to those questions respectively are no, no, yes, and not very. But you probably want a bit more detail than that. So uh, so let's find out the truth of the matter. Nero is remembered in history as a... Um, Well, look, a bit of a dodgy emperor, to be honest. Uh, He's usually thought of as, you know, extravagant, murderous, tyrannical. Um, uh, But he was, in truth, a a steadfast populist. He enjoyed a fair bit of political success, to be honest, winning wars, expanding Rome's borders and uh, expanding its economic power as well. Um, He was also the emperor, by the way, during the time of Boudicca's Revolt, bloody episode 42, get across it. Uh, but he, he also had his fair share of enemies, and history hasn't judged him very kindly, uh, with good reason, because he bloody loved to spend money. He was happy to raise taxes throughout the entire empire to do so, and nearly brought about the financial ruin of, uh, of the Roman Empire In uh, you know, because of his lavish and opulent spending. He put a lot of money into public works programs, but they were all ordered to be you know ridiculously over-the-top, opulent, whatever else. Um, and he also attracted criticism uh, during his reign for denigrating the title of emperor. Uh, he did a lot of he did a lot of things that people sort of thought you know wasn't uh, wasn't befitting a man of his stature you know he'd appear in public as a as an actor or a, or a musician or even a charioteer and uh, people weren't huge I mean lots lots of people bloody loved it but he had a fair few political enemies who were who were not a fan of the fact that he seemed to be you know tarnishing the name of the Roman emperor the the office I should say of the, of the Roman emperor there. Um, for example, he, uh, in 67CE, right, he competed in the Olympic Games. He had to actually bribe the organizers to, to delay the event so he could take part in it. Um, and, uh, you know, much to the adulation of his supporter base, he won every single event that he entered because the people that he was up against were smart enough to concede to be ha- perhaps the most powerful person on the face of the planet at the time. Um, well, actually, there is one thing he lost. Uh, there was one thing he didn't win, Um a 10-horse chariot race. He was thrown off the chariot and didn't finish. But he was still crowned the winner. He was still crowned the victor because he argued that he would have won if he hadn't been thrown off. In other words, I would have won if I hadn't lost, was the thrust of his argument, it seems. Uh, And again, people didn't argue, so he was deemed the winner of that one all the same. Um, He also, like, murdered his mum at one point and his wife, and maybe even his second wife. So it makes sense that people, like, weren't huge fans of him and didn't really want to mess with him. But where did the story about the fiddling come from? Well, Nero was, as I said, he was a musician and quite a talent talent one too, it seemed he didn't didn't mind showing this off either. So it's not hard to imagine this, you know, this matricidal egomaniac fiddling away as his city burned to the ground, except it is hard to imagine for one simple reason. Violins didn't exist yet. The earliest th- the earliest thing you can really reasonably call a violin dates back to around the 16th century, a long bloody time before Nero. So R- Nero, you know, of course, rather than playing an instrument that hadn't been invented yet, he instead, he played the lyre. Uh, so perhaps then he played the lyre as uh, as Rome burned. Well, the Great Fire of Rome, it took place in in July 64CE. Um, it broke out near the circus Circus Maximus and then spread, uh, across much of the city, destroyed three of Rome's 14 districts and, and left another seven in a very bad way. It essentially took out two-thirds of the city, uh, burnt for over a week, thanks to the wind blowing uh, blowing the, the fire through crowded and very dense timber-framed housing. And it's been written about extensively over the years, um, uh, most notably by historians such as Cassius Dio, uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, all wrote extensively about it. But here's the thing. None of those three blokes were around when the fire actually took place, and their accounts are all secondhand. And, you know, probably as a result, none of them agree on all of the facts. None of them were there when the the fire took place. They're all reading bloody Pliny the Elder and other other, uh, historical documents that didn't uh, last the test of time. And uh, their uh, analysis and estimation of it, of course, is wildly varied. Well, maybe not wildly varied, none of them were huge fans of Nero, but at least somewhat varied when it came to the details of the fire. And this is a great shame because there's actually a little bit of intrigue when it comes to Nero and his role with the fire. Never mind him bloody fiddling with it or fiddling during it or playing the bloody lie. Never mind that, mate. Many ancient sources actually claim that the fire was deliberately lit on Nero's orders. Suetonius, Cassius Deo, and some others, they all talk about how Nero hated how Rome had been built. He wanted to, to knock all these houses down and build a brand new palatial complex in the middle of the city. And so as a result, a lot of these historians claim that Nero himself ordered people to start the fire, knowing that it would rip through the city and give him a chance to rebuild it as he saw fit. Now... It's not known if this is true or not. We will probably never know. Tacitus is, is explicitly unsure on the matter. But you're still asking, did he play any kind of musical instrument whatsoever while the fire ripped through the city? No, he didn't. I mean, that's yeah, no, he didn't. <laughs> he, I mean, obviously he didn't play the fiddle, but nor did he play the lyre, he didn't play anything. According to Tacitus, Nero actually wasn't in Rome when the fire began. Uh, and when he learned that the fire was, you know, blasting through Rome, he, he returned to the city at top speed and helped to organise the relief effort. And he actually did a decent job of this, apparently. He set up homeless shelters, he sorted out food for the people who had lost everything to avoid, you know, starvation, whatever else. So he didn't play the lie while the city burned, much less the fiddle. He was actually in the thicker things. He was helping the city deal with the situation that it found itself in. He did, however, in the wake of the fire... Get to build his palace. He went on to blame the Great Fire on the Christians, who were, remember, just at this stage at this stage in history, just his tiny little sect, not much more than a cult. It's only 64 CE after all. Uh, so Nero uh, blamed these Christians for the fire and had a bunch of them bloody burnt alive, thrown to the lions, even crucified. Um, and it kicked off a, a great wave of persecutions against early Christians. Uh, the Christians, obviously, eventually get their own back as, you know, Christianity went on to dominate the late Roman Empire and uh, and obviously is now one of the most dominant uh, religious forces in the world. Um, but at the time, back then, Nero was widely seen as the first persecutor of Christians in the aftermath of the Great Fire. And whether he used that as a as a cover for his own machinations so he could build this great big palatial complex or whether they were just a convenient scapegoat to redirect public energy, whatever else, we don't know. But all that aside, the long and the short of it is this. Nero did not fiddle while Rome burned, principally because the fiddle didn't exist yet, but also because he was doing the exact opposite of what the saying suggested he did. And this is the great irony of the whole thing. I mean, look, he may have been doing it for the wrong reasons. He may have been doing it to give his conspiracy greater deniability and hasten his dream of building this new palace. But for all of his other faults, the thing for which Nero is most infamous is in fact false. He did not fiddle while Rome burned. Here's a very interesting one for you. Uh, Everyone knows the saying red herring. Of course, everyone's heard of this idiom, uh, something that's designed to distract you from what's actually important or relevant. It's often used uh, to refer to uh, a literary device, uh, a clue a deliberately placed misleading clue that tricks or distracts the reader the the author will put it in there to lead them towards a false conclusion before you know a twist reveals what actually had happened or whatever but the saying is actually more it's it's relevant um also in in politics in philosophy and in, in argumentation more generally when you attempt to mislead or deceive someone with a seemingly important point that take away from the real thrust of the argument that's a red herring it's a type of fallacy put simply right regardless of what sort of the area in which it's used, a red herring is something that seems important, but actually is not. It's used to distract. Um, But why? Why do we call such a thing a red herring? It was only very recently, actually in 2008, that we discovered the true origin of the phrase red herring. And before that, people had the wrong idea about where it came from and all believed something that wasn't true about the the origin of this, uh, this idiom. Before we get to that, though, let's talk about what a red herring actually literally is before we talk about, talk about its figurative meaning. Uh, one of the earliest ever references that we found to a literal red herring comes from the mid-13th century, so they've been around for a while, red herrings. But as you know, probably, herrings are not red. They're smallish silver fish, they're not red, uh, and they're eaten by everything from seabirds to dolphins to sharks to, of course, humans. But the only difference is here that we humans, we like to do, you know, very weird things to our food before we eat it, unlike, you know, seabirds and sharks and whatever else. Before the days of refrigeration, preserving food wasn't a very simple thing to do at all. Uh, You had to cure it. Typically, you would cure it, uh, you would draw out the moisture curing um, with things like salt or smoke. And herrings were no exception to this. Herrings were often cured. They'd be split open from head to tail, and they'd be smoked over smoldering wood chips. And after this, they'd be known, of course, as kippers. But interestingly, if you smoke a herring for long enough, it goes from silver to red. And this is why we end up with the literal phrase red herring for a kipper. It's a kipper, a silver fish that has been smoked until it turned red. And now it is a kipper, now it's a red herring. But why do we use this term To describe a distraction. Well, up until 2008, it was believed that that red herrings, kippers, were used to train scent hounds. Now, if you didn't already know, a red herring, a kipper, absolutely stinks to high heaven. Absolutely stinks. Very, very strong smell indeed. And in 1807, an English politician named William Cobbett, he coined the phrase red herring after he told a story about how these kippers were apparently used. According to Cobbett, people who were attempting to train young dogs, so hunt masters, right, they're trying to, trying to uh, train these young scent hounds, they'd train them to follow a scent along the ground and they'd use the strong smell of these kippers. You know, they'd drag them along a trail on the ground and they'd have the dog follow the trail. And this... Uh, this process sort of introduced these young dogs to the idea of following a scent along a trail during a hunt, getting them used to the uh, to this sort of behavior. And this makes sense, sure, but that hardly makes a red herring, you know, a misleading distraction. If anything, it makes it a training tool, and we don't call training tools red herring. So where does the uh, where does the element of deception and 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 misleading and, uh, and misdirection come in? Well, Cobbett says, wait, wait, wait. There's more to this story because. When the dogs have progressed enough in their training, right, and they're now well and truly used to following these trails, the, the hunt master, the trainer, will get the red herring out again, hopefully not the same bloody red herring, because, geez, I don't know how to be stinking then, but they'd get out the, a, a red herring and they'd use that this time as a distraction. Once you've got a scent hound that's able to follow the trail of a fox or, you know, whatever's, whatever's being hunted, a badger, the trainer would then get a red herring and drag it across the fox's scent trail, perpendicular to it, so as to try to distract the dog with a stronger smell. Now, the dog would follow the fox trail, come across the trail left by the red herring, and it would succeed in its training if it ignored the red herring scent that was trying to lead it away, and instead continue on along the fox trail. And so there you have it, a red herring, something that is used to distract you from the actual goal, from the correct conclusion, something that is, is used to mislead you and draw you away from what's important. Now, Cobbett's new phrase, poetic as it was, it caught on, and so red herring picked up the figurative meaning that it still has today, and for 200 years, up until 2008, Cobbett's story was accepted as generally true and the origin of the phrase. But however, here comes the twist, this is not what red herrings were used for by hunting trainers. Cobbett got it wrong, or in fact, just made it up. Red herrings weren't used to train hunting dogs, but rather used to train hunting horses. Now, this might sound weird, but uh, I want to tell you the story here. Horses, very skittish animals, as you probably know. They seem to generally live in a permanent state of near terror. You know, just if you ever doubt that, just put a plastic bag near a horse and see what happens. They absolutely lose it. Um and it seems, right, that as early as the 17th century, and perhaps perhaps beforehand, hunt masters would attempt to desensitize horses to the chaos of a hunt, to the smell of death that came with a hunt, obviously, by using not red herrings, but Dead foxes or dead cats, right? They'd try to acclimatise these horses to to you know some of the stuff that they would invariably encounter encounter on the hunt. A bloke named Gerland Langbane wrote about this in 1697. He explained how this technique could be used to have a horse, uh, you know, as I say, become more accustomed to some of the stuff that it would experience during a hunt. And he also went on to explain that if a dead fox or a cat wasn't available, you could instead use a red herring as its strong smell would make a fine replacement. So again, it was used as a training. We're back to to using red herrings as training tools. Now, I actually went to great lengths to verify this. I I personally spoke to an expert on horses. I tracked one down and I spoke to her dangerously risking this podcast becoming full-ass history, might I add. I mean, I better be careful here. Um, anyway, I talked to this esp- this expert about uh, whether this sort of thing would actually make sense. whether you're using you know a dead animal, whether it's a fox a cat or a-, or, a- or a herring, would actually make sense to train horses. And I learned that while horses don't actually have a very strong sense of smell, they really don't like the smell of death. And so uh, you know acclimatizing them, uh, acclimatizing hunting horses specifically to this smell does make some sense. On the other hand, however, apparently horses are very susceptible to a thing that's known as flooding, a state of overstimulation that leads to something called layered helplessness, where they'll more or less ignore everything around them and just kind of shut down a little bit. And so horses that are out there in the chaos of a hunt would be able to shut out the smell of death and everything else and sort of shut down everything except for the need to just run and run and run. So if that's true, then the need for the animal carcasses and the red herrings and whatever else might have ultimately been unnecessary and hunting horses obviously aren't trained with them anymore but according to Langbane that's what's that's what was done with hunting horses and their training over 300 years ago now it's thought that this story was misunderstood this is where we've sort of you know this is the sort of the, the treadmill that we've run on to get to the point where red uh, red herrings are what they are today it's thought this story was misunderstood uh to apply to dogs as well as horses and then William Cobbett came along and you know he was a well, a bit of a polemicist, to put it to put it very mildly, um, and he added his own little twist to the story in order to, you know, make his political points. And him painting this, you know, rather poetic metaphor about a, a red herring being used as a as a distraction or a or a piece of misdirection, it caught on. It caught on, and like so many other sayings, the the story ended up coming from something that had a grain of truth in it and then just kind of took off in the public imagination. We went from a point where the story, you know, the story evolved from red herrings being used to train horses to being used to train dogs and then finally being used to distract dogs and that's where we landed with red herrings today. And now when you hear this phrase, when you hear this idiom, when you hear red herring, you instead of thinking of centuries-old hunting techniques that are ultimately fictional – you think of Sherlock Holmes, you think of Agatha Christie, and you think of all the times that you've been the hunting dog reading these books and gone off to follow the kipper when you should have stayed on the fox
0: trail. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
2: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online
1: What a gift I'm about to give you here with this last saying. What a gift. You will impress your friends. You will bamboozle your enemies with the newfound knowledge you're about to receive here. Newfound knowledge of the phrase, hoist with his own petard. And yes, that is hoist, not hoisted, and with, not by. So you're already getting premium, well actually, fodder here. Um, And you can follow up correcting the way that someone says this phrase. Often people will say, hoisted by his own petard. And they, of course, actually mean hoist with his own petard. And you can follow up that correction then with an explanation of the phrase itself. But wait, there's more. A twist with this saying that you will not believe. You will not see this coming. It is absolutely brilliant, mate. Hoist with his own petard is like so many other English phrases, it is attributed to William Shakespeare. Um, be all and end all, eat me out of house and home, and even, I mean, I didn't know this, knock knock, who's there, are all from Shakespeare's works. So he really, uh, you know, he had a, obviously had a huge influence on the, on the English language. And one of the many famous phrases he left us with is hoist with his own petard. The saying, of course, refers to when uh, someone falls victim to their own malice. Is probably the best way to put it. An ironic reversal of a of an evil plan. You know, something that uh, something that delivers poetic justice to someone. For example, uh, the way that Thomas Midgley died, episode thirty one. Go and get across that water tale. That is. But what is a petard, and why does someone get hoist with it rather than hoisted? Well, we're going to have to head back uh, many, many centuries here and we're going to discuss everything from bloody etymology to explosives with this one. Hoist with his own petard appears in Hamlet when Hamlet is, I don't know, he's pretending he's bonkers and killing people or something. I never really had much understanding of what's going on in Shakespeare. Basically at one point, right, um, two of Hamlet's mates, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they're given a letter to take to the King of England. Uh, instructing the king to put hamlet to death but then hamlet switches out the letter at the last minute with a letter that instead tells the king to execute rosencrantz and gildenstern and so these two end up well basically hoist with their own, well, hoist with their own letter, I suppose, executed by their own letter. Um, they hand over a letter designed to kill someone else, and that ends up killing them, hoist with their own petard. That's how Hamlet describes it, and that was the, the reason the idiom caught on. Um, ironic reversal is a very big thing in Hamlet. There's the bit with the poisoned swords, when um, Laertes poisons his own sword to kill Hamlet, but then the swords are swapped while they're fighting, and so Laertes instead gets poisoned by his own poison sword. I mean, poisoned by your own sword could have ended up being the phrase, but instead it's hoist by your own petard. Thanks, Shaky. Um, petards didn't end up being much of a thing as history progressed, so, you know, it ended up being a bit of an obscure saying, but it's a, it's a good one all the same, and you'll be glad that it survived by the end of this story, let me tell you that. So, first, let's deal with hoist. In Shakespeare's time, right, hoist was the past tense form of the verb, not the present tense, right? So, when Shakespeare wanted to say hoisted, he would say hoist instead, because the present tense wasn't hoist as it is today. It was hoise. So you'd say something like um, uh, "hoist that thing up here," would ya? Or um, has that thing been hoist yet? Rather than "hoist that up here," would ya, Or has that thing been hoisted yet? So there was a sort. Of, there's a there was a change in the in the conjugation of this verb. No, no idea why, but that that is just what happened. Um, so I, I suppose when people say "hoisted" with his own petard and not "hoist," they're actually just updating an old saying to you know correct modern day twenty first century English. But still, we all know that the best kind of correct is technically correct so obviously you should still correct them and say it's well it's actually hoist but what's a petard we've dealt with hoist hoist was the old past tense of hoise but what is a petard well for those who haven't played age of empires 2 and i know that age of empires 2 has a disproportionately large influence on the history that's discussed on this podcast for some reason for those of you who didn't play age of empires 2 i'll tell you what a petard is a petard is a primitive explosive device basically just a bomb ...that was used in siege warfare to blow holes in enemy defences. A typical petard was a container. It was usually conical or bell-shaped, but sometimes rectangular or cylindrical. And it was filled with two or three kilos of gunpowder. Gunpowder, man. Oh, episode 115. Get across it. Uh, this ex- this explosive device uh, would then be propped up against you know, a wall or a gate or whatever... ...or it would be affixed there with a base called a madria... And a slow match would then be used to light the explosive, and then you better bloody run away as fast as you could, or you would be, as Shakespeare would put it, hoist with your own petard. Now, petards were extremely dangerous. They were just a very primitive bomb, and it was not, you know, an, un- an uncommon thing to be hoist by one. Um, uh, because they relied on people being in very close proximity to them when they were being, you know, set up and lit. So there was an inherent amount of danger with using them. They were shaped in order to deliver maximum force to the thing that they'd been set up against. But you'd still be bloody hoist halfway to the moon if you were near them when they went off, because they had that moment, you know, two or three kilos of bloody gunpowder, mate. This is not, a, this is not something that's going to go gently. But here's the twist. Here's the twist that I promised, and you're not going to believe this. I I honestly don't know if you're ready for this. The twist is the etymology of the word petard. This is brilliant. Have a listen to this. The word petard comes from a a French word, a French verb, the verb peter. And, you know, you can sort of see how that was put together. Peter became petard, like that. And and, and the word petard is is still a French word, right? But the verb peter means, and this is not a joke, all the French listeners here—they know exactly what's coming. The word "peter," the verb "peter," it means to fart. I like I what what did it look like to drop your guts in medieval Europe? If they are naming a powerful and dangerous explosive after a fart, were were, were people getting hoisted? After cutting a stinker? Were people blasting themselves into the sky every time they bloody ripped ass back in medieval times? In today's modern French, right, petard, it means firecracker, which is just brilliant. Basically, you know, little French fart machines. Think of this gift of knowledge you've just received. Think of this gift of knowledge. Not only now can you correct someone the next time they say hoisted by his own batard. Well, actually, it's hoist with his own petard. You can also, you also get to now impress them with your knowledge of not only Shakespeare, but then you can entertain them with an amusing story about farting. Never, ever, don't you dare tell me that this podcast doesn't deliver, mate. Never, ever. How could you possibly say that this podcast doesn't deliver? I bet you, I I bet you didn't open this week's episode expecting bloody fart facts, mate. I'll tell you this, the next time you hear someone use the phrase, you know, correctly or incorrectly, I very much hope you'll have a little giggle as you imagine a bunch of bloody medieval siege engineers ripping ferocious toots as they set up their bombs, and maybe you'll give a small thank you to Billy Shakes for inadvertently giving history a highbrow fancy saying that he's actually secretly just about farting. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. I do hope you enjoyed this. I had a great time reading and, uh, and writing about these uh, these different sayings, and I think I'll do more episodes like this in the future. So I'd love to hear from you. If you've got a saying that you think is worthy of investigation, please make at least a cursory effort to make sure that it is. Like, for example, "paint the town red" is supposed to be about when this nobleman actually, literally painted a town red after getting really drunk and you know causing a lot of trouble it's not true it's just a made-up story so at least a little bit of research to make sure that what i'm looking into isn't isn't a complete wild go- wild goose chase well i don't have to look into that one now, bloody next episode wild goose chase may find out about that but i'd love to hear from you anyway with suggestions or feedback or anything else uh halfhousehistory.net of course is the, is the website to go to. there's a contact form there old episodes subscribe blah 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 and if you want to support the show on Patreon, please do patreon.com slash half history. We've got a handful of t-shirts still available for sale, smalls and mediums only. If you want to grab one at uh, uh, half-arsed history.bigcartel.com, you can go and uh, get the very last of the stock there. But that is that. Thanks to everyone who listened. Thank you uh, to the people who are spreading the word of the show, to your friends and enemies and people about whom you feel largely indifferent. It's great to see those. Got to get those numbers up. As ever, I say the same thing every week. Leaving you, of course, as we do every week with a question posed on Reddit. We've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, sayings, phrases. We've been talking how they were coined. And a great question here coming to us from Redditor Sal Ali Hashim, who asks, who coined the term coined?